Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, good evening, everybody. Good evening, everybody. All right. Make sure you're awake. All right. If you want to go ahead and uh, find your seats, for those of you that are Pastor Henry, if you're still milling around, go ahead and... (laughs) I'm just giving you a hard time. He'll get me for that one. Uh, If you got your Bibles tonight, your devices, whatever, you want to follow along, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. We are, of course, making our way through the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And tonight, uh, the title of our lesson, as you can see, is Thou Shalt Not Kill. And I'm going to warn you ahead of time, this might get a little intense tonight. Uh, In fact, uh, the next few weeks are going to be a little intense because uh, Jesus is really going to start to dig down uh, where we uh, where we live. Um, let me get this fixed up here. wasn't quite ready to go. Sorry about that. So let's start with verse twenty. This is the verse that uh, immediately precedes our passage tonight. Jesus says this: "For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." Now, listen. <laughs> that is a provocative statement, right? Anybody with half a brain should, should read that and think, man, okay, I need to look deeper into that because he's saying that there is a righteousness, uh, a standing before God that will not get you into heaven. But that means there is one. And I want to know, okay, what is this, what is this righteousness like? And he's going to spend the, the rest of this chapter, the rest of chapter 5, basically explaining that verse or explaining what that statement means. He's going to show us in the rest of chapter 5 a, uh, a Christian righteousness that does surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and a righteousness uh, that is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he's going to do this by giving us six illustrations or six examples. Now let me say this uh, and you can see what they are, murder, adultery, divorce, Uh, the swearing of oaths, vengeance, and love. Now, as I said, you can notice he doesn't cover everything. He's not going to cover idolatry. He's not going to cover honoring your, your, your mother and your father. He's not covering stealing. So it's obvious that what he's not trying to do here is give us some detailed explanation of the law. That's not the point. The purpose here is just to give us illustrations, as we just said, of what this righteousness looks like that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, I want to say something before I get started here. Um, I mentioned last week that, again, he's going to give us six illustrations. Every illustration will start with some variation of that statement. Okay? You have heard that it was said. Now, I explained last week why he said that. What was his purpose behind that? And if you remember what I said, that in Israel in that day, they had been conquered so many times over the years by foreign nations. 
conquered by the Babylonians, conquered by the Persians, conquered by Alexander the Great, conquered by the Romans. Uh, many of these uh, guys had been dispersed all over to these foreign countries. Uh, they had come back. They had lost their language. And so by the time you get to Jesus' day, the common person, the common Jew, could not write and read Hebrew. So they couldn't pick up the Bible and read it. They relied on somebody else, in this case, the scribes and the Pharisees who were educated. They relied on them to tell them what the Bible said. So that's what Jesus is saying. You've heard it said. You haven't read it for yourself, but people have told you this is what the Bible says. Now, I... I covered that in detail last week. I really had no intention of talking about it anymore, but then something happened. The first thing that happened was this past Sunday, Pastor Henry preached a sermon on um, uh, basic training. Uh, and basically what he was trying to, to get to us is that we, we, we need to think about changing how we read our Bible. The fact of the matter is a lot of people, and I'm sure some of you guys do it, we, we read our Bibles, at, we have some kind of program, if you will. For example, I know many of you right now are probably going through the Bible, read the Bible in a year, and I won't ask you how many of you are doing that, but you've got a certain amount that you have to read every day, and there's certainly some value in that. Other people, maybe you've got a, a daily devotional, you've got a certain author, you've got a certain pastor that you really like. So you've got a daily devotional. You get up every morning, you turn to that page, and it says, let's read this. And you read it. And, uh, and again, that's, there, there's certainly some value in that. But there's also danger in that. And the danger in that is that you will start reading your Bible just as a checklist. Everybody with me? You read your Bible, and sometime later that day, somebody says, what did you read? And you, can't, you don't even remember. You just read it, and you got kids ready, and got out the door, and, and you don't... In other words, it just becomes this, this thing you do. And basically what Pastor Henry was saying was we need to slow down. We need to slow down. You don't have to read a certain amount of uh, verses or a certain amount of chapters. It, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. If you're not ready to move on and you think, man, there's something there that, 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 that's catching my attention, slow down. And that was a, a great word and a great encouragement and then Monday, I was reading an article, and I ran across this. There was a survey in 2020. They surveyed over 5,000 Americans, and the numbers came back, and 9% of them read their uh, Bible daily. Only 9% of Americans read their Bible every day. There was another survey in that article that I linked to by Lifeway. Uh, they surveyed only Protestant churchgoers. So no atheists, no, no Muslims, no Hindus, no Catholics, just Protestant churchgoers, and less than a third of Protestant churchgoers read their Bible on a daily basis. Now, here's what I want to say to you. If you're not reading your Bible, then you're no different than those men that sat on that mountainside 2,000 years ago. You're no different. Now, they had an excuse. They couldn't read Hebrew. They couldn't read the Bible but we've got our Bible in English. We've got multiple copies sitting in our house. Some of us have got them sitting on our, uh, at our, on our night tables, and we're not picking it up. And so if you're not reading your Bible, you're relying on somebody else to tell you this is what the Bible says. could be somebody in a book or somebody on a video or somebody on YouTube or even somebody on a Wednesday night service. But we've got to be better than that. 
See, you may say, well, I, I trust you. Folks, listen to me. I'm, I'm trying to find a... I struggled this week to find a good way to say this. But every week I prepare a lesson and I have to decide what to say and what not to say, what verses to put in and what verses to leave out. And I can tell you it is very easy to manipulate people. Very easy. And the better communicator you are, the better manipulator you can be. It's easy. The, the, the struggle as a teacher is say, I'm going to give them the truth no matter what they think. They don't agree with me, that's all, I, 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 there's nothing I can do. But there are people out there that will manipulate you. Okay, We need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17 where Paul comes in and he teaches them and it says they would leave and go examine the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. So here's my encouragement to you. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Leave here on a Wednesday night or a Sunday and go home and open those Scriptures and make sure that what I'm saying or Pastor Henry's saying or Brother Bill is saying or Chuck is saying or anybody else that speaks is, is sticking to the Scriptures. Don't rely on somebody else to tell you this is what Scripture says. All right, let's move on. Tonight we're going to come to the first illustration that Jesus uses, which is, Thou shalt not kill. Let's look at verse 21. So Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, These people are telling these people, hey, this is what the Bible says. You shall not murder, and if you murder, you'll be liable to the judgment. Now, let me say that both of those things are 100% true. They're not twisting it. They're not lying. The Bible says exactly those two things. For example, the Sixth Commandment, and when I say the, the Sixth Commandment, I'm talking about the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. The Sixth One in Exodus 20, 13 says this, you shall not murder. So they are, they are repeating Scripture verbatim. And it, they're also what they say about if you murder somebody, you're liable to the judgment. That's also true. For example, Numbers 35 through, uh, 30 to 31, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. So what they're saying is exactly 100% true. You shall not murder... And if you do murder, you're in danger of, uh, of, of the judgment of an earthly court. So you and I may read that verse and, and immediately we think, well, what's wrong with that? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. They do what manipulators do. You ever go to, if you ever been to court and they ask you to put your hand on a Bible, what do they say? Do you swear to tell the truth, the, not a half a truth, And nothing but the truth. In other words, tell me the truth, tell me all the truth, and don't mix the truth with any lies. What these guys are doing is they're telling the truth, but it's only some of the truth. So we may look at it and say, well, what's wrong with that? Here's what's wrong with that. They had boiled the commandment of God, the the incredible, unbelievable commandment of God, thou shalt not kill. They had basically boxed it down, restricted it down, boiled it down to this. Don't do it, because if you do, you'll get in trouble with the law. That was their interpretation of the Sixth Commandment. What about God, though? What about His character? What about the fact that, that we're all made in the image of God? What about His judgment? Let me tell you, none of those things ever entered the discussion with them. 
they literally had restricted the sixth commandment down to the, the, the scope or the confinements of an earthly court. And that was it. Now listen, they're not, they're not saying that murder is not wrong. They're not saying that murder is not a, a terrible thing. That's, that's not what they're saying. Certainly it was a sin. Certainly it was a bad thing. But what you need to see is they had reduced it merely down to something legal. Something that had to be handled by a civil court. And why did they do that? They did it because when they did it that way, it was something they could easily obey. I said this last week, right? Every Pharisee and every scribe could lay their head down at night and say, I didn't kill anyone, therefore I kept that uh, law perfectly. I didn't kill anybody, and that's all that law means is don't murder. Therefore, as long as I don't murder somebody, boom, I check that one off. I kept that law perfectly. Let me give you an example, and this may help some of you that have read the story of the rich young ruler, and you've noticed something in that story that's a little odd, and you're like, how could he say that? Well, I think this might help you. In Matthew 19, there's a story, and we've all heard it and know it, of the rich young ruler. He comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to Jesus, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And watch what that young man said. Oh, I've done all those. Man, I'm in good shape. I ain't murdered anybody. I hadn't slept with anybody that wasn't my spouse. I checked that off. Perfect, perfect, perfect. He went all the way down the line. Now, he knew something was wrong. He knew inside that he was lacking something because he asked Jesus, what am I lacking? But he thought literally he had kept every one of those absolutely perfectly because that's what he'd been taught. He'd been taught that this, that's all the law means is just this one thing centered around the act itself. Now let me say something. This is something we all have to be careful of. And that is reducing God's commands down to something we can easily keep. There's a tendency in every single one of us to read a command and then change it or reduce it down to something we can keep instead of trying to react to what the command really means. We're, like, we're just like the Pharisees in that. In fact, I can prove it to you. I'll give you three of them. Murder, adultery, robbery. When I say murder, what do you picture? Immediately, you'll picture somebody with a gun or somebody with a knife killing somebody. If I say adultery, you immediately think of the, of the act. If I say robbery, you think of, man, somebody with a, with a pistol or, or beating somebody up and taking their wallet... I just say the words and you immediately think of the physical act. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, robbery. See, we think of the act when we think of those things. But Jesus said, no, these things come from in here. They're born in here. They originate in here. See, the law says don't kill. But that doesn't just mean don't commit the act. 
See, to interpret it like that is just to stick to the letter of the law. And to, to interpret it like that, we do that because it's a way that we can easily keep it. But Jesus is not going to let us get away with that. He's going to say you cannot interpret the law that way because you will completely misunderstand the meaning. So here's what he says. He gives us two things. Number one, and we're not going to like it, but this is the words of Jesus. He's going to say this, that what you feel about a person is just as bad as what you do to that person. Look at verse, the first part of verse 22. You've heard it said, Jesus said, that the, thou shalt not kill just means don't commit the act or you'll be in danger of an earthly court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You've been told that you're only liable to judgment if you kill somebody. I'm, t- I'm telling you today that you're liable to judgment if you're angry with someone. So I'm going to ask you here tonight, I'm just right now, are you angry with somebody? Is there, do you got bitterness in your heart against someone? Are you nursing a grudge against somebody? My guess is right now there's something popping into you. If you do, it's probably popping into your head right now. And you got this person on your mind. Jesus is saying, and again, I may not like it, but he's saying that's the exact same in his eyes as murder. Because God looks at the heart. You see, the earthly court and earthly people, we just look at the act. We look at the outside, but God, He goes way past that. He looks at the inside. He looks at who you are down deep. Now, let's just go ahead and deal with this. Can we just say, that just don't seem right. That don't seem fair. Are are you telling me that me and somebody else both get angry and that person can't control their anger? And they let that thing boil over into the act of murder. And here I am. Yeah, I got angry, but come on, man. I controlled it. Right? I kept it under wraps. I didn't, I didn't actually commit the act. You're telling me that I'm as guilty as him? That just don't seem, that just don't seem right. It don't seem fair. Let me give you a couple of what-if situations and tell me what you think. Let's say there's a man that gets in a car and he's, he's angry with somebody. He's, he's let his rage just take over and he makes a decision, I, I'm going to kill that person. And he gets a gun and he gets in his car and he begins to drive to that person's house and he is, he's got every intention of committing that act. But on the way there, something happens. He has a flat tire, maybe gets pulled over for running a stop sign and they, they find the gun, they take him to jail or... Maybe, uh, maybe, you know, his motor blew out or whatever. But for some reason, he never makes it to the person's house and he's never able to commit the act. Are you actually going to tell me that he's more right before God than if he had killed the person? See, God looks at his heart and says, you're a murderer. Whether or not you actually committed the act, that's who you are. That's just an act. That's just a physical act. That's just a a symptom. But who you are on the inside, you're a murderer, whether you committed that act or not. Let me give you another one. Did you know it's possible for you to hate more than a murderer hates? 
Let me give you an example. Let's say there's a young man grows up in the inner city of Chicago or New York, and he, he grows up without a father. He has nobody there to show him what it means to be a man, how to control himself. And he gets into a gang at a young age, and he's given a gun. And one day he's out on the street, and somebody disrespects him. Somebody just slights him. And he pulls out that gun and kills that guy. And, he's, and to be honest, he's not even angry. That anger, are you with me? I mean, he, he don't even know the guy. And he commits the act. But you and I could sit in this church and in these seats and we could have a hatred in our heart for someone far more than he hated that person. Are you with me? Now, we may not commit the act for various reasons. Maybe we're scared of the consequences, scared of getting caught. Maybe we never have an opportunity. Maybe it's because of your upbringing. Maybe it's because you got self-control. But are you telling me that God looks inside your heart and sees the hatred that you have and somehow you're more right than Him before God because you didn't commit the act? God don't judge that way. God looks deep inside each and every one of us to see who we are. 1 John 3.15 puts it as bluntly as it can. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is hard for us to accept because it's a complete way of, of judging and examining than, than we do naturally. You know, we just we, everybody looks at the outside. But God, he, He's got that God vision and He can see who you really are down deep. And that's how He judges. So Jesus says, what you feel about a person is as bad as what you do to that person. Then he goes on and says this, what you say about a person is as bad as what you do to that person. Look at the second half of verse 22. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. These are expressions of contempt for somebody else. These are slurs. These are slanders. These are insults. And what's important about these is they're indicative of who you are or what's down in your heart. Look at Jesus, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Why? Because what you say with your mouth tells who you are on the inside. Who you are in your heart is going to come out in your, in your words. So again, it's just Jesus saying, look, you say those things. It's the reason I'm going to judge you on that or the way I see those things is because I, they're indicative of who you are down deep inside. Now listen, I don't know of a civil court in the world that would ever sentence anybody to death for getting angry with someone. I don't know of a civil court in this world that would ever sentence anyone to death for insulting someone or, or, or certainly not for calling someone a fool. But folks, listen to me. This ain't no civil court. This is God's courtroom. And God is the judge. And when you walk into His courtroom, what He says is those that do those things are just as bad as those who commit the acts. You see, God looks at the heart for the truth of who you and I are. Let me say that again. When God is looking for the truth of who you are as a person, 
He doesn't just look at the acts you commit. He looks deep inside. What do you have in here? What do you, what do you have? Do you, are you forgiving? Are you showing mercy? Are you loving? Are you not seeking vengeance? Or are you hating? Are you unforgiving? Are you bitter? Are you nursing a grudge? Those things tell who we really are. Now, I need to... I want to cover one thing before I move to the second half of the passage, which I think is the most important. I want to cover uh, three words, okay? If you're here tonight and you use an older translation, uh, maybe like the King James Version, you may notice that there's a, a phrase in there that's a little bit different than the one that I read. For example, Matthew 5.22 in the King James Version says this, But I say unto you, that whoever, whosoever is angry with his brother, and you'll see three words, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, the King James Version was published in 1611. If you do the math, that was 412 years ago. And the King James Version is an amazing, uh, amazing accomplishment. If you've ever... Uh, I did a teaching a while back on the history of the Bible. There was a lot of bloodshed to produce the King James Version of the Bible. It is an amazing, amazing accomplishment. But the fact is, it was published 400 plus years ago. And in those 400 years, archaeologists have continued to uncover more and more manuscripts from the New Testament. And what they found is they've uncovered these older manuscripts than they had access to in the King James days, they found that some of the older manuscripts do, does not have those three words in there. So what you'll do is you get to a newer translation. For example, the New King James Version, they'll put a note in there. So for example, the New King James Version will leave it in, but you'll see that little letter. Some of y'all have probably seen that in your Bible and you didn't really know what that means. And you look down there at the note and it says, "...in you omits without a cause." What that's saying is in the oldest manuscripts that we have, the oldest ones that go back the furthest, that those three words are not in there. And then you'll get to something like the ESV, which is what I use, and they'll leave it out entirely, but they'll put a little note in there, and you'll look over in the notes, and it says some manuscripts insert without a call. So they'll, they're all telling you, hey, it's here. Do with it what you want. Okay? You know, they're not telling you it should be or it shouldn't be. But, you know, I just wanted to point that out because some of you may think, man, he's just leaving that out on purpose and I'm not doing that. Now, you may think, well, why did that happen? How did some manuscripts get it in there and some manuscripts didn't? We don't know. We don't know why that is. But let me give you one possible reason. Maybe there was a scribe or there was a copier one day who was making a copy of that verse, and he read that verse, he who is angry with his brother, and he said to himself, you know, Jesus can't mean all anger because there is an anger that is good and right and just. So maybe he thought, well, I'm just going to help Jesus out here, and I'm going to just put in there without a cause. Now, I don't know if that's what happened, but that's certainly a possibility. Now, here's the thing. If he did that, he was wrong. The Bible tells us, I think in Deuteronomy 4 and Revelation, you do not add to the Word of God. So if he did that, he was wrong. But let me tell you, his thinking was actually correct. Because Scripture does teach us that there is something called a righteous anger. That there is an anger that you can have that is not 
sinful. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 711 says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels anger every day. Some translations say indignation, but that word is, it means anger. How about Jesus in Mark 3, 5? It says, Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. Jesus walks into a synagogue on a Sabbath day. He sees a man, a lame man with, with a crippled hand. And it says they looked at him to see whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath. They were more concerned about whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath than whether or not he would uh, uh, actually uh, restore a lame man's hand. And Jesus looked at their heart and think, man, how can you, what's wrong with you? And it says he was angry, but notice he was was angry because he was grieved at the hardness of their heart. Ephesians 4.26 says this, be angry and don't sin. That right there tells us that there is an anger that is not sin. So here's the question. What's the difference? What's the difference between a righteous anger and an unrighteous anger? Well, here's the easiest way for me to explain it. Righteous anger is always concerned with injustice done toward others or dishonor towards God. Jesus was angry on that day because they had no, they had no compassion for that man. Remember when he goes into the temple and he overturns the, the money changers? He's angry. He says, you turn my, my, the house of God, a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. He was angry because they had disrespected God. But there is another type of anger, and that anger is not good. And that anger is only concerned with one thing, and that's me. You did something to me. You hurt me. You offended me. That anger is not good. See, righteous anger, if you're, if you're... And by the way, there's some of us need to get more angry at some of the things that are being done to disrespect our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should be angry at some of the injustices that are being done to children and being done to women and being done to other races and whatever the case. We should be angry. God is angry about those things. What we tend to get angry about, though, is me. You did that to me. You hurt me. You offended me. Look at 1 Peter 2.23. Jesus is angry at the hardness of heart. Jesus is angry because they disrespected the house of God. But Peter says when he was reviled, when he was uh, uh, slandered, when he was insulted, look what it says. He didn't say a word because it was against him. He He didn't respond. When he suffered, when they hurt him, he didn't threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the difference between the righteous anger and the unrighteous. One more thing I want to say, and some of y'all may notice this. He says, don't call people a fool. Don't insult people when he does exactly the same thing. Turn to Matthew 23, the seven woes. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says this, you hypocrites, you blind guides, you, you blind fools, you serpents, you brood of vipers. I mean, he just goes off. So why is it okay for Jesus and not okay for you and me? That's why. Because he's the judge. He knows their heart. He knows their, their end. He knows all about them. He's the judge. He, he, that is perfectly his right to do those things, not you and I. We don't know 
what people, what's in a person's heart. We don't know the things that they've been through. We don't know what God is doing in their life. That is not our right. But he's the judge. He can do whatever he wants to do. All right, second half, and I've got to go quick. This is the most important part, okay? And it's fixing to get intense, so just get ready. Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. That's true. But Jesus says, I say to you that, that it doesn't stop there. Not only are you not to murder, you're not to get angry, you're not to insult, or you're not to slander. Now, what if he stopped right there? What if he just stopped right there? Do you notice he made the box bigger, but it's still very tempting to fall into the same trap that the Pharisees fell into? For example, I might say, okay, do not kill. That means don't murder, don't get angry, don't insult anybody. Okay, I'm going to work on my anger. I'm going to work on my anger, and I'm, I'm going to work on my, my words. And I, I, I can do this thing. And by the way, you could lay down tonight on your bed and say, did I kill anybody? No. Did I get angry with anybody? No. Did I insult anybody? No. Whew. Boom. I kept that law perfectly. Are you with me? It's a, it's, it's a bigger box, but it's the same trap that you can fall into. Well, Jesus is not going to let us stop there. Let me give you a good rule of thumb. There are a lot of commands in the Bible that are stated in a negative way. Thou shalt not do something, right? We're all familiar with that. Whenever you see a command that says thou shalt not, try to state it in a positive way. Just think, okay, it says don't do this, then what should I do? How how would you restate that in a positive way? Certainly I shouldn't kill somebody, but what should I do then? And think about that. I don't have time tonight to sit here and, and, and let you think through it. But what should we do? For example, should we protect life? That would make sense, right? Not, don't just don't take it, but protect it. But wouldn't you say we're also to enhance life? I walk by a person and they're poor or they're naked. What am I doing if I just walk by and I don't meet their need? What is that? Shouldn't I give? Shouldn't I, shouldn't I uh, contribute? Shouldn't I do those things? So it's not the negative is don't kill them, but the positive is, is protect them, enhance them. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, I believe, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who don't seek vengeance. Blessed are those who forgive. Blessed are those who show mercy. Blessed are those who love their enemies. We could go on and on. The New Testament is full of positive statements of what it means on the other side. Are you with me? The Old Testament says don't kill. The New Testament's full of this is what I would rather you do. So what you need to see tonight and what Jesus says is when you see the commandment don't kill, it doesn't just stop there. It also means that we are to be proactive and repair broken relationships. How important is this in God's eyes? Listen to me. If you got broken relationships in your life, there's somebody you got a grudge against. There's somebody you're angry with. There's some, some, uh, there's some root of bitterness towards somebody. If you've got a broken relationship, God wants you to be proactive and He wants you to repair that relationship. And it's so important to Him that, he, it, that it should come ahead of your worship to God. 
Now, even as I say that, it almost sounds blasphemy. You're saying that, that God wants me to put my relationship uh, 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 with some human being ahead of my worship to Him? Absolutely. Read it with me, the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 23 to 24. So, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, you come down and you lift your hands and, Lord, I just praise you, I worship you, I honor you. God, I, I, you're, you're offering some gifts. Some, what does the Bible say? Offer up the sacrifice of praise, right? You come down to that altar and you're offering your gift. And Jesus said, and there at that altar you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift at the altar and get out of here. Go. Be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and offer your gift to me. Now that's a strong statement, right? You see, for the people that were sitting there on that day, on that mountainside, this, this, they would have understand this, understood this completely because their whole lives centered around the synagogue. It centered around the temple. And that temple, there was a brazen altar. When you walked in and you brought your, your bulls or your goats or your turtle doves or your, uh, your lambs or your grain offerings to atone for your sin, the sacrifices, the smoke, the blood going on every single day, uh, prayers being offer, offered up, people fasting, tithing, all these religious activities are going on. You see... What the Pharisees did, and and listen to me, we fall into it. They fell into the trap of thinking that their religious activities, their worship, their gifts to God somehow covered up the moral failures of their relationships. We're the same way, guys. You know there's a broken relationship in your life. And when it bothers you, this is what you think, man, but I'm going to church every Sunday. I'm in church every Sunday, and I'm volunteering in the children's program. I'm paying my tithes. I'm teaching a Bible study on Wednesday night. Certainly, certainly God weighs all that and understands that that's just offset by a little broken relationship. Folks, that's a trap. That is a trap. You see, Scripture has always taught us from the Old Testament to the New that our personal relationships, our human relationships, are reflective of our relationship with God. Let me give you a few Scriptures. Jeremiah 7, 9 through 10. God says this, Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and then come stand before me in my house? In other words, get out of here. You're not going to get anything from me. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just, I'm just making noise. Matthew six fifteen, Jesus says, If you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you your sins. How about 1 John four twenty? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's lying. For you don't love your brother who you can see. How in the world can you love God who you have not seen? How about 1 Peter 3, 7? Husbands. Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. God says, Husbands, if you want me to hear your prayer, honor your wife. Honor her. 
And you go back and look at that. That's it's literally, think about putting her on a pedestal. Honor her. Give her praise. Protect her. Treat her like the, the valuable thing she is. And he says, if you don't, why are you praying to me? Why are you coming to me and asking me for things? I mean, think about some of those things he just said. When we have broken relationships, your, your, your words are just noise. You're, you're, the, the things you say, you're a liar. Your, your prayers are not answered. You're not, your sins are unforgiven. Your, your worship is useless. If you've got broken relationships in your life. Listen, we cannot have a right relationship with God without a right, right relationship with others. I don't know why we keep thinking we can when the Bible says it over and over and over again. Literally, God says, if you got broken relationships, river of life, put him on hold. Put me on hold. Go get them right, then come back and offer your gift to me. Listen, I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now what I'm going to do tonight. In just a few minutes, I'm going to open the altar. And what I'm going to ask you to do is because even now, you've got somebody on your mind. Even now, I, I, I know you do. You've got somebody on your mind that you think, man, I need to make this right. And what I'm going to do in just a few minutes is I'm going to open this altar and I'm going to ask you to come. And I'm basically going to ask you to come and ask God to help you do the thing that you need to do. You're not going to be able to make it right down here. But you can certainly come and say, God, okay, I heard what you said. I'm going to do this thing. I need your help because it's not going to be easy. And when I walk out of here tonight, the devil's going to come like the, like the seed that's been spread on the ground, and he's going to try to take that word away from me. So you need to come tonight, and you need to say, okay, this is what I have to do. And you may say, well, if I come down, everybody's going to know. Who cares? Who cares? Who's more important? What, what somebody thinks or what he thinks? Make up your mind. That's what we got to decide. Now, I got one more thing to say before I do that. In order, let me say this. You might think, well, I don't think I'm ready to do it tonight. Maybe I'll do it next week. Maybe I'll do it Sunday or in a couple Wednesdays from now. I want you to listen to what Jesus says at the end of this passage. In order to demonstrate how urgent this is. He's going to leave the illustration of worship, which he just gave us, right? He said, if you come to the altar and you remember your brother's got something against you, get up, go, make it right, come back and offer your gift. That's a, that's a worship of, uh, an illustration of worship. In order to demonstrate how urgent this matter is, he's going to change from an illustration of worship to a legal illustration. You see, it was common in those days, and really, actually it was really common up until the 1800s, that if a person owed a debt that they could not pay, the, the person they owed it to could take them to court, right? Remember debt? You've seen probably debtor's prisons and stuff, and they'd throw you in a debtor's prison, and you could do labor to, or your family could pay, but you stayed in that prison until you paid that, uh, until you paid that debt off. But in that day, what would happen is, as long as you hadn't gone to court yet, you could still negotiate. You can say, look, man, I know I owe you 100 but how about I give you 50 today and 25 next? I mean, you could still negotiate. But once you got to the court, and once the court proceeding started, and once it got the judge involved, you were out of it. 
you didn't have any... Now it was up to him to make the decision. And if that judge got a hold of it and you got thrown in that debtor's prison, you stayed there until you paid every last penny. Listen to what Jesus says. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Folks, listen, his point is absolutely unmistakable. Do it now. You and I are on the way to the court. You and I are on the way to see the judge. Some of you may see him tomorrow. Some of us may see him in five years. You may, but you are on the way to the court. Do it now while you can. Make every effort, everything in your power without delay to reconcile your relationships. Don't wait until it gets into the courtroom of God. Now let me say this. Some of you may be wondering, well now, this judgment thing in this courtroom, is he talking about the judgment of, of unbelievers or is he talking about the judgment of believers in, in the sense that God would discipline us? I'm not really sure, and to be quite honest, I, I don't care. I mean, just look. Is that, what you, is that the life you want to live as a Christian with broken relationships? where your talk is just noise, your words are untrue, your prayers are unanswered, your sins are unforgiven, and your worship is useless. I don't. I don't. But that's the kind... That's, he, he, he is saying, man, this is so, so important. I end with one quick story, 1 Samuel 15, and, uh, and then we'll close and, and pray and open the altar for just a few minutes. If you, if you go home tonight, you may want to read this story. God has told King Saul to uh, go and attack the Amalekites. You know, you got the parasites and the Jebusites and the, all the sites, right? Well, there was these Amalekites. And God, God says, tell Saul, okay, it's time. Go in and wipe them out, everybody. Kill every animal. I don't want no dogs, no cats, no sheep, no cattle, no camel. I, want, I don't want nothing left alive. Wipe them out. So Saul musters up about 200,000 men. He goes and he defeats them. I mean, wipes them out. But he sees those sheep, man, and he sees those cattle, and he thinks, what a waste. Man, these are some good sheep. These are some good cows, good camel. And he leaves them alive, and he takes them back to the camp. And God sends his prophet, a man named Samuel, to go talk to him. And Samuel walks up in the camp and says, Saul, what are you doing? Saul says, man, we're just worshiping God, <laughs> having a good time, celebrating our, our victory. And Samuel says, what? What's that bleating I hear? B-L-E-A-T-I-N-G. What's that, what's that sound I hear? Oh, Saul said, well, Samuel, the people. That's the first thing he said. You know, the people, they saw those sheep and they saw the cattle and they just, man, they, they were healthy and they just couldn't kill them. They just couldn't do it. So we decided to bring them back to camp and offer them as a sacrifice to God. Come back and offer them as a gift to God. And this is some of the most famous words in the Bible by the prophet Samuel. He said this, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as He does in just obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Listen, river of life, 
tonight God is telling us, reconcile your relationships. And to obey that command is better than any gift, better than any worship, better than any service, better than anything you think you can do for Him. He doesn't want that. What He wants and what He's asking you to do is get those broken relationships fixed and do it now. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go ahead and open up the altar just for a couple of minutes. As I said previously, if you've got somebody in mind that you need to, you need to settle up with, you need to, to get with them, and maybe they got something against you, maybe you got something against them. It doesn't really matter, by the way. The, 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 the relationship is broken. God's given us His command. God's told us what He wants us to do. The question is, will we do it? I'm going to pray if you want to come and spend just a a couple of minutes. As I said, you can't make it right down here. But what you can do is commit to God to do that and ask Him for His help. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I uh, thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the, the command that You have given tonight. And Father, if there's anyone here that has a, a broken relationship in their life, that God somehow, some way, this word that goes out tonight will just be the, 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 the hinge point. It'll just be the, the timing will be right, that they'll be able to walk out of here and go tomorrow or the next day or as soon as they can and make that relationship right. How many of us, God, and I don't know this, how many of us, have been just saying, God, why, why am I not doing more? Why am I not hearing from you more? Why am I not growing more when all the time it's because we're, we're, we, you need, you've told us what to do and yet we just absolutely refuse to do it. God, no more. No more. No more. God, we want your glory in this church. We want your glory in our lives. We want, we want our worship to be beautiful and full. We want our words to be true. We want, our, we want everything to be right. But God, without doing what you've asked us to do, Father, that's not going to happen. So Lord, thank you for bringing this word to us tonight. Thank you that while we're on the way to the court, that you still give us one more chance. Thank you that while we're on the way, that we can still... Make it right. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all you do and for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.